Good morning and welcome uh, to the Mike and Mike podcast. It has been a uh, brief sabbatical for us as too often happens um, between Michael and I. Uh, work and various other obligations pull us in different directions and sometimes we're not uh, not able to get to this every week like we would like. Um, hopefully you've missed the podcast as much as we have uh, while we've, we've been um, pulled away in other directions. But we're glad you're here with us and uh, we continue to turn our attention to learning about um, workers in the Bible and how we can learn from their successes and failures. And we've looked at several successes and failures so far, and we're going to continue to do that today um, from uh, from First Kings in the building uh, of the temple. Uh, but before we get into that, as joined with me always is my esteemed colleague from beautiful Somerset, Kentucky. Michael, how's everything down your way today? Great, my friend. I will uh, I, I will give the uh, blanket disclaimer uh, about about all of these. Um, you know, we as, as we always acknowledge the 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 business lesson is not the primary lesson that's taught. Obviously, it's not the thread that that's through scripture that is of primary importance. And yet, you know, we're given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And and so, you know, we we Mike and I as we as we began this. This, this kind of study and and um, this this thread of, of thought is is can we learn something about the way we go about our, our job lives our our day to day vocations can we learn something about the way that Bible characters went about their vocations and and I think we've learned that we can um, you know we've seen lessons like we've seen lessons from pretty amazing people like Boaz. And then we've seen some pretty scuzzy people like Laban and, and we've, we've kind of learned from, from each, um, in the way that their, that their vocations kind of fold into their bigger spiritual lives. And so that that's kind of the, kind of the, the point of, of what we're undertaking here. Obviously you're the, the salvation that, that we have and the, the hope that we have is, is the thread that's most important, but it's amazing that these, ancillary lessons if you will um they, they they're there if you look for them and and they're not even necessarily easter eggs they're just laying there you just got to look for them um and so this is this is not some hidden knowledge that we're looking for this morning this is not this is not you know trying to you know make something out of scripture that's not there it's just these additional lessons that, that god leaves for us if we're paying attention and so um this morning we're we're um focused in, in first the book of first Kings and we're in the building of the temple that period of, of uh, Jewish history and specifically we're talking about a man or I guess men named Hiram and uh, once once we get into the uh, the Kings period of Old Testament history I go ahead and let Mike do the background so hey it's all yours brother <laughs> all right so you know let's talk about kind of where we are. Um, chronologically overarching, right? So we begin the, at the end of Judges, and, and Michael and I didn't do a great job here. I think we started, you know, with what, uh, Boaz, and then went back through Genesis, um, the opposite direction. So we're out of Genesis, we're out of the Exodus, um, we're past the stage of Joshua and the conquest of the land, and the judge, then you have the judges who come in and, you know, you've got that messy judges cycle. And at the end of the judges cycle, the people say, we want a king so we can be just like everybody else around us. And so they grab Saul and Saul's a disaster. But after Saul, the Lord takes 
the, uh, the kingdom away from Saul and gives it into the hands of David. And David, a very complicated character, did a lot of good things and was a man after God's own heart, but also did a lot of bad things and messed a bunch of stuff up. David, because he was a man of war and violence, David wanted to build a house for God. And God said, no, you're a man of violence. You don't get to do this. But I will let your son build this. And so David, even though he had a myriad of other wives, uh, decided that he wanted Bathsheba, one of his very close friends' wives. He murdered the friend. If you remember the, the story of David and Bathsheba, murdered the friend, took her. Their first child dies. Their second child is Solomon. And Solomon, out of all the rest of David's children, is who the Lord directs to take over the kingdom. And Solomon rises to power here. And, and if you remember the story of Solomon, is that God came and said, because of your father, David, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, give me a wise and understanding heart that I might judge your people. And so because Solomon sought wisdom, God blessed him with everything else. And here we have now, there's peace. And all of the land's at peace. There's no violence. And now it's time to build the house of God. That's what Solomon intends to do. And that's, that's where we begin in 1 Kings chapter 5, is this amazing project of building a temple where God is going to reside. And so, you know, if you think about that, and, and, and let's, let me kind of start there with my first question to Michael is, Michael, how do you even envision this task? So I'm going to put you in Solomon's sandals here, and you're going to build a house for God. What are you thinking about as far as, you know, design, architecture? How do you even begin this, you know, incredible task? Yeah, and and so I'll, I'll take it back a half step from there is I think it's a it's an incredibly interesting study to contemplate whether this was even God's intention. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's outside the scope of what we're doing this morning. But when 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 God said to David that your son will, will build a house for me, that, that I think that passage is worthy of some some study. Um and and we know how Solomon took it <laughs> for sure, right. uh, but but was that was that was that really was that really the intent, or was that more of a messianic? Uh, but but uh, once Solomon has had designs to to do this project, you know that a couple of important things to note here is uh, he he was not budgetarily restricted, you know, <laughs> and, and that that uh, that that certainly opens a lot of doors for you. Um, and if and if you look at the, the the biblical account of the quantity of gold and silver and stones that were put into this um, in, into this project, it's it's staggering. I mean, it's jaw droppingly staggering. And in fact, I think in our in, even in the passage that that we'll read um, this morning, they didn't even weigh the bronze. I mean, it was like what bronze? Yeah, I mean it. So, so something that at certain points in human history would have been very valuable, it was, I mean, it was just incredible, just this, the scale and the scope of the, of the wealth here. And, and specifically, you know, and, and the, the cedars from Lebanon that, that come down, it's, it, so budget, if budget is not an, not an issue, you build something pretty tremendous. Now, how do you design such a thing? You know, that, I think that gets into a deeper more complicated conversation is 
what did God want and what did what did Solomon provide? And was it the, you know, in Solomon's best intentions? Because again, I don't I don't see God providing the blueprint here. I don't think that we see that God says, you know, what would be great is if we got Cedars of Lebanon. And then if you got these bronze pillars out in front of the temple that are 75 feet high, that would be pretty cool. I, I don't I don't think we see that blueprint from God. I, I think that was Solomon's design. And and you know, did the majesty as defined in earthly terms, did the grandeur of the temple become an idol to the Hebrews is a is a is a real important question. Um like was this was this pinnacle of you know if you think about the, the Jewish nation as an empire, you know, mm-hmm. if you think about it in those terms as a as a world power, this was this was the zenith, right? This was this was the height of their influence, the height of their wealth, the height of their power, this this uh this uh reign of Solomon, which which kind of became the the focal point for for generations after thousands of years, you know, is, is the Messiah going to come and bring back a, a reign like Solomon's that was that powerful, that was that wealthy. And, and this, this structure became the symbol of that, that how beautiful and ornate the temple was. And, and it, it, it became the thing that in some ways distracted the whole nation from the reality of what God was trying to do. So I, that's a that's a that's a long way around the barn answer to your to your question of was was this God's blueprint or was it man's blueprint? I I think that we see that this is man's vision of what God wanted, um, and sometimes that's a dangerous little game. Not in sometimes, all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, all the time when when we decide and 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 look, I, I'm. I guess I'm getting old and soft because I become an apologist for everybody. Um, and I feel like an apologist for Solomon here because I try to put myself in, in, in his spot, right? That if God's going to live here, this has to be nicer than everything else we've got, right? That, that God can't live in a shanty. You know, if, if the, um, as Ezekiel puts it, if the uh, image of the likeness of the appearance of God is going to dwell here, then this place should be pretty nice. Now, and a very interesting spot to this is as nice as it was and as much of a focal point and draw as it is, you know, it, it's not very long before it loses its luster, which is amazing to me. You know, when, when we read the opulence and, and, and read this, like this should take your breath away. You know, we look at the seven wonders of the world and, you know, the Taj Mahal or um, uh, whatever those things are called over in Sydney, you know, the arches and all that stuff, you know, you see that stuff and it just kind of stop in your tracks look, that stuff is the projects of Harlem compared to what the temple was. Like there is nothing that exists today, any man-made creation building today that would even come close to what this temple looked like. So let's just understand that from an opulent standpoint. But even still, as beautiful and as opulent and as incredible as it was, it, it wasn't enough to hold their attention because there's not a generation or two later before they start dragging other God's stuff in and putting in the temple. There's not too long before, you know, they're building in the high places. And, you know, a lot of this stuff, while I think in Solomon's mind, as he designed it, 
is this would be a focal point to draw our attention to God. When you see the majesty of this, you think God is here. Again, man's, man's vision isn't always God's vision. And, you know, when we, we put stock in the building itself, you know, I, I'm reminded of, um, and, and I think we talked about this in one of our podcasts, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, when, when they rolled it out and just like threw it in front of them, like, hey, we've got the Ark with us. And they threw it out in front of them and thought that would win the war or in the battle um, instead of understanding it's the power that's within it and drawing on God. And so anytime we start skewing and thinking that it's the object instead of the creator, that we're always going to have problems. Um, and those objects will, you know, fade and lose their luster from time. Um, but the, the, the other side of that, really briefly, and then I'll let you go. The, the other side of that, that's not contradictory, but that we got we to gotta acknowledge and weave in here and try to make sense of is that God did live here and that, and that he even he moved this was if he moved in, even if this wasn't his blueprint, you know, this wasn't his, this wasn't even his design as, as God in his grace often does. He, he, he takes our bad ideas and he makes them work to his benefit. Um, that, that God kind of did that. Um, and so you kind of got as, as off beat and off path as we might have thought this project was God did live there. And he made a point of, of, of a dramatic show. In fact, is if you go to the kind of the grand opening of the temple, I don't, but that, that he, he made that point very clear. Okay, sorry. Yeah, when he moved in and when he moved out, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah, both times. So <clears throat> we, we spent, as Michael and I often do, um, spend a lot of time on the background before we even get to the, the, the good part of this. So the point of this is not, you know, necessarily. What if we've already, what if we've already done the good part? <laughs> <laughs> well, that oftentimes happens too. Um, so, but the point of our study this morning, though, is, we want to look at the workers in the construction of the temple. You know, I'm convinced as, as, as Michael is that God's intent was messianic and greater than physical things. I think that's what God was trying to tell David. They missed it. Okay. They built this lavish temple and God moved in. Um, they left God, God moved out, but let's stop for a minute and look at, you know, in the building of the temple, if you're going to take on a project like this, and you are going to build this opulent thing. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. And, and Michael, uh, maybe let, let's let, I'm going to ask this to you because I'm, I'm so far removed from this. But you just went through a massive building project. Right. So can you imagine, though, if instead of designing your all's new facilities and sitting with architects and whatnot, if you were designing the temple with no budget? Because you obviously were very budget constrained, but with no budget, like just walk me through what you think those meetings look like, because this is just, I mean, it's baffling to me. Yeah. And you see, you see some evidence of that in first Kings chapter five, when Solomon is talking to the King of Tyre and he says, Hey, you just get this done and whatever's fair, I'll pay you. You know, there is no, there's no negotiation here <laughs> that, that, that Solomon, you know, there's, there was some in, in his own intent, he wanted he wanted this to be, as you noted, he wanted this to be uh, a special place. To that, we can what, whatever, however misguided that intent was, that that desire was was sincere, and and so in in all of these, it was finding the best stuff, the best um, the best 
building materials. I'm going to go to the, um, and again, that's first Kings chapter five. That's where we are. I'm going to go to the King of Tyre and make sure that the timbers used for this facility are the nicest in the world. And so that we see that negotiation in first Kings chapter five about how do we get these timbers, um, we're going to float them, literally float them down the, the Mediterranean Sea, down to, down to Israel. Um, and, and, and as we move on to 1 Kings chapter 7, how do I get the best uh, craftsmen of the day to, to work on this facility? And so we get to this, this other guy in 1 Kings chapter 7. And, and I, I'm going to read a, a, a proverb written most likely by Solomon, which I think may be interesting, but in, in Proverbs 22, 29, we read, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I think that verse, that proverb, and proverbs are tricky, you know, <laughs> proverbs are directional. They're not always definitional, but that that verse, I think, is the key to what we kind of wanted to talk about this morning is, do you see a man skillful in his work? <clears throat> he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how long this Hiram of First Kings chapter 7, um, I don't know how long he was a worker in bronze of, in obscurity before he was called on by the king, but because he was skillful in his work, eventually he was. And I get, I think that that, that might be the, the key to what uh, we, we wanted to, to drive home. Yeah, and I did, I, I did a poor job of setting you up here. But when, when you – let me ask this question. Um, again, because many of our listeners probably haven't gone through, you know, building projects like this. But, you know, one of the first things you've got to do is line up contractors, right? You know, you guys, you know, you and, and Mickey weren't out there pouring footers. So how do you go through that process of – you know, who's going to be your GC and how are you going to get contractors? Cause you did, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not, you know, Hey, we got a guy down the street. It's, you know, there's a process you go through. So talk a little sure. bit of that, like from a, you know, when you're going into this building process, how do you go about evaluating and finding people to do work? Cause I, I think that plays into what Solomon was doing here too. Yeah. And, and certainly there's people that could answer this question much better than I can, but but obviously you want to see some portfolio of past um, job performance. You don't want this to be the first time this guy ever finished concrete. You don't <laughs> want this to be, you know, you don't want this to be the first time that this team ever uh, erected a steel building. And so <clears throat> now if you're, if you're deeply, deeply ignorant, like I am, then you kind of rely on the, the, expertise of others to tell you, Hey, I've, I've worked with this team in the past and, and they, they are excellent um, electrical engineers. They are, they are excellent at erecting steel buildings. And, and, and here's examples of some of the work that they've done. And even, even from a GC, GC perspective, you know, here's other, here's other projects, other buildings that we built, you know, call this owner and ask him what he thought about the process and how did, how did, how did this GC perform and did they have any issues? And so there's certainly some vetting of, of that, um, of, of the people that you want to work on, on, on your project and, and you want to make sure they know what they're doing um, and that they have, they have a history of, of doing good work. And so again, that, do you see somebody who's skillful in their work that, that they're, 
you don't, to your point, you don't want this to be somebody's first job. Everybody's got to have it. Everybody's got to have first job. You just don't want it to be on yours. Correct. And you know, again, I don't mean to knock your building project, but it's not the temple of the Lord, right? You guys weren't, weren't setting out to erect the temple of the Lord here. And so you had different constraints, but even with, we got, we got a few corners to solve and probably didn't. <laughs> even, even within your constraints, it was still like, you don't want the rookie on your job. So there's sure. no way they want the rookie on the temple. What sure. scriptures talk about with, with this, the, the word they use is, is reputation. You know, right. It's, it's your reputation. What are you known for? What's your character say? And we use words today like portfolio and vetting and whatnot. But in, in their day, it's what are you known for? So I'm, I'm going to read from uh, First Kings chapter five. Um, let's see. Starting in verse five. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. This is um, Solomon having a conversation um, with the king of Tyre. And he said, so I intended to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to my father, David, your son, whom I set on your throne in your place shall build a house for my name. Now, therefore, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me and my servants will join your servants and I will pay for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Or however you pronounce that. <laughs> Sidonians. That, that, that's incredible. I mean, think about that. What he says is everybody knows their portfolio, their work. Nobody does it like these guys do. Nobody does it like these guys do. And so that's our work principle number one today. Um, so we've said a bunch of stuff to get to point number one. But work principle number one today is be, be very good at what you do. You know, whatever your craft is, and, and that's all of us are, are different with, with what our skill sets are, but whatever it is, do it and be known for doing it. You know, look, I, I, I'm the best whatever that, that I can be. And I pour my heart, my effort, my energy into that. And they develop a reputation. Nobody cuts wood like these boys. Nobody works hard like these guys. Nobody produces like they produce. Well, well there's, there's a reason that goes into that, though, right? We know it's not reputation, Typically within a business, it's process, right? You've developed a process over time that is efficient, that creates a good outcome, that creates a replicatable outcome, and you follow that process. Now, we, we may take, you know, and I don't know how, how long the Sidonians uh, practiced this before they got this reputation, but I promise you it wasn't, it wasn't a week, right? This is probably generations of them working on this. And you know, that's what we do throughout our careers. We get better at what we're doing and we develop a, and we talk about it in today's vernacular, you develop a brand, you develop goodwill, you develop a name. And it's because of, of being very, very good at what you do. So business principle number one today is be, be as, if you're choosing to do something as a vocation, be as good as you possibly can be on that. That means furthering yourself, furthering your education, working hard, pouring in the commitment. Be as good as you can be at that if you want to be successful. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a pretty standard Bible um, principle, right? Um, you know, even even New Testament, Colossians 3, you know, for me with Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily, do it from your soul, um, do it um, uh, knowing from the Lord you'll receive your inheritance that, you know, who we're working for is, is not really our boss. And we've made that point many times. And so you do your work, you do your work heartily. 
and and, and meaning that that it, it you should not be able to find a Christian who does slipshod, half done work. You just shouldn't be able to find them. Mm-hmm. That if if they are peeling stickers off the ground, they are the best sticker peeler that you can possibly find. Mm-hmm. And 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 that 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 sh- that's why Christians should be the best coworkers, should be the best you know employees, you know, et cetera. That and it's that principle that that goes throughout Scripture that 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 resonates with God that we do our that that we are working in all things as if we're working for Him in whatever we do, um, and that again those who do their work skillfully, Proverbs would say, eventually get recognized, um, uh, and and whether you know we can have a conversation of you know they're always recognized because God recognizes it. That's obviously critically important. Um, but also there is, there's some evidence from scripture and from Proverbs that, that you'll be recognized by men also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see that evidence in first Kings. Yeah. You can, you can make, and that that's part of it is the, that those skills will help you make a good living. You know, I, I think sometimes we have this misconception that to be a good Christian means you need to take a vow of poverty. But I think as we've seen over and over at these Bible characters we look at, some of them were really, really good at business and, and made tremendous amounts of wealth. Now, we've talked about, and, and hopefully you know, you've been following through us, the reason why they were successful and the reason why they made money was because they were really good at what they did and they didn't care about the money. Like that's, there, there, there's an important part about that, that you know, if you're that funnel that we've talked about, and you don't, you're not really worried about what's coming in. You're more worried about being a disbursement of it. And you take care of your craft. God takes care of all of that. You know, it's, 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 I, th- I think it's very similar to um, the, the point in evangelism is that, you know, either you're sowing or you're watering, but it's up to God to get the increase. If you're not worried about that increase, it, it seems to me over and over in scripture, the most successful never worried about the income. They worried about the outcome. They worried about who they were being able to funnel to, the good they were able to do with it, and they perfected their craft. That's That, to me, is the magic formula. If you want to be successful in life, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not a, you know, hey, am I keeping track of how much money I made last week? It's, you know, what good am I doing in the world, and am I really honing my skill set? That Those seem to be more important to me than than anything else that we've looked at. And the parallel lesson there, I think, is that everybody kind of keeps their head down and does their own task. And that and that we, we don't meddle around and worrying about is everybody else doing their task. And I think that's to your plan watering um, comment also, is that I, I've, I've, my responsibility is to do my thing. Um, and if we get to First King 7 and Hiram, who's, who's molding in bronze, his, his job was to do his job. And not to worry, you know, well, I'm going to go make sure that the timbers are, are doing their thing. I'm going to make sure that the, the you know, the doors are, are aligned. That, that wasn't his thing. I'm going to make sure that the cedars are cut properly. That wasn't his thing. He let the people that did their thing do their thing. He worried about his thing. And uh, I, I, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that, that to your point, work on your craft become good at your craft, but do your craft, you know? Um, and there, there's a, there's an old John Madden quote that I've, I barely understand. And, and I, I think he barely understands it, but 
uh, don't worry that the horse is blind, just load the wagon. And, <laughs> and I, I, I enjoy that very much because it's like, if we get caught up, am I doing the right thing? I don't know what's going to happen to this horse. I, I, that's not, that's not your job. Don't worry. Don't worry that the horse is blind, just load the wagon. Just, just do your responsibility. And if everyone is, has that mindset, this will be okay. We'll, we'll, we will accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and so, uh, not only to the work skillfully, um, but to, to everybody concentrate on their, on their own work. Again, not that you don't care about your coworkers or any, any of those things, but that you know that you're responsible, you're accountable for the job that you are doing. Um, that I think that, that has a, a biblical precedent. Yeah. And, and I think that's hard for some people because we, we have a tendency to compare ourselves to coworkers, for sure. you know, uh, it looks like, you know, she's not working as hard as I am, or he's not working as hard as I am. So, you know, we, and we get caught up in that comparison and that, you know, the, the idea of fair and what's fair in the workplace or all that, it, which is nonsense. All it does is distract and take you away from the goal. You know, if I do my job with it's the funny thing is it's management's job to figure that stuff out. It's not my job. My job is to do this. If one of my coworkers isn't working as hard as I am or not doing their job, that's management's job. Management's supposed to look at that. And so, um, and if it, management's not, then, you know, the board's supposed to look at that. So if everybody focuses to their task, that's how we have better outcomes. But I wanted to, I, I didn't want to end the study without reading about, about our boy Hiram from Tyre, because, I mean, this is just pretty incredible. I mean, think about this, if this was your resume, right? And, and, and not only, you know, look, Michael and I have both looked at a lot of resumes that um, are pretty much just fiction, right? You, you've seen that resume that's, you know, a, a graphic novel. Um, it's not real. I but may have this, written one. <laughs> <laughs> but this is recorded by the Holy Spirit. So you know it's legit, right? So it's been vetted. And King Solomon sent and brought, we're in 1 Kings chapter 7, starting in 13. Sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. Now, again, sometimes you've got to kind of read in the text a little bit. Michael, if somebody does the first project for you, and it doesn't go well, do they get a second project? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and so on. Yeah. So he did all the work of Solomon, I think is where you're headed here. Yeah. I mean, he did everything. And you don't keep getting work from the king who has unlimited resources, by the way. I mean, he can fire you tomorrow and bring in 10 other guys unless you're doing exceptional work. Um, I, I'm going to quickly read through through 15. Just some of the stuff that he does is, is, is just pretty amazing to me. He cast two pillars of bronze, 18 cubits was a height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work with the wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the top of the pillars, a lattice for one capital and a lattice for the other. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows and the one uh, 
to cover the other capital and the capitals that were on tops of the pillars and the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars were also above the rounded projection, which is beside the lattice work. There were 200 some pomegranates in two rows all around. And so with the other capital, he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple and he set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. Interesting there. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus was the work of the pillars was finished. That's a lot about pillars, right? I mean, just the ornate work that's described, that's captured in the very few verses of scripture we have to encompass everything that happened. I mean, friends, if, if you can't put that in context and step back and see the, you know, the enormity of what he was able to do, uh, I mean, it, it's pretty incredible. But the only reason he got the job, the only reason he got the call was because of his reputation for hard work, for diligence, and for doing excellent work. You know, th that's that's what we've got to got to know and understand when, when we go to work every day is, is what's, what's my role and what's my job. And it's to Michael's point, he wasn't worried about when the timber was coming in. He wasn't worried about the Sidonians. He wasn't worried about, you know, the people that were working, um, pouring the foundation or carving up the courtyard or planting the flowers. He wasn't worried about any of that. He was obviously very detailed in designing pillars, right? Support columns. But yet he, his attention to detail and attention to his craft is what made him successful. And the fact that he was able to do all of Solomon's work, because remember, Solomon built two houses, not just one. He built one for God, but his house wasn't exactly a shanty either. Was it Michael? Yeah. And, I think to that to that point you made, Solomon's not a dummy, right? Like he he would have known that if if he had seven guys that were fashioning all of his bronze, and remember he used so much bronze they didn't weigh it. If he had seven guys that were fashioning all his bronze, it would have been way more efficient. And I can almost see the conversation they come up to him and say, you know, you know, Hiram's doing great work here, but he's he's kind of bottlenecking us on this bronze work. You know, we could bring in some other guys, we could go move a little faster, we could get this side done, and and it's like now. Listen, if it's bronze, Hiram's my guy. Like he's my guy. He's the bronze guy. He's 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 the guy I trust to do the work. And uh and so the, got this obscure character who Solomon trusts with what Solomon I'm sure would call the most important project of his life. Right. And, and real quick, um if if you got the verse handy, how long did it take him to do this? Oh, I don't have the verse handy. Thanks though. It was uh I believe it was a little over seven years. Got it. Let's see if I can find it. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was like seven years in the construction of the house of the Lord. Okay. And so I want you to think about that. The patience that it took to build this thing for seven years. You know, there, there, there's a reason that, you know, I've never built a house because I can't wait six months. Right. I, I, can you think, I mean, just the, I, I, I have a hard time fathoming seven years of work going into this house. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And then they turned around and it was another seven or eight years on Solomon's house. So, I mean, you're, you're in a construction process for 15 years. And um, Michael, uh, just a real quick close. How long did your construction process take? A year. How long did it feel like? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
if you told me that it was a 15 year project, uh, I would, there's no question I'd be selling insurance tomorrow. They find you on a roof somewhere. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's just, again, to, to the, the scale of the project and what they did and, and were able to accomplish is, is pretty amazing. So as we wrap up today, um, you know, three things I want us to think about is, is one, you know, all work we do is, is for the Lord and we should do it with, with all of our, our skill, heart and ability as, as much as we can. And there's, you know, pouring ourselves into that craft um, it is also a work of God. And I think that's the other part of it that sometimes we get disentangled from is we think that when I work, it's for work. And then when I go to church or when I do other things, that's for God. No, it's all for God. And so the fact that we do a poor job at work also poorly reflects on God. So that, that's got to be part of it is, is one, do, do, do that work heartily, um, pour your skill into it. Um, and, and, and two, closely regarded with that is, is the reputation. Our reputation means something. Um, you know, your reputation for work, for what you do um, within your industry, within your peer group, within your profession, that means something. And, you know, uh, the proverb that Michael quoted there, that, that, and that's why you go from obscurity to in front of kings, or, or, or to say it another way, that's why you have success, it, is when your reputation matters and it means something. And then the third thing is we have to focus on what we do. Um, distractions and worried about what everybody else is doing is is a recipe for failure, not success. That when we're constantly looking around and comparing ourselves to what Jill in accounting is doing or what Bobby in sales is doing instead of doing my job, um, then we're going we're gonna to be in trouble. And you know, now if you're in management, don't get me wrong, and your job is to manage all of those people, then yes, your job is to pay attention to what they're doing, but you're not doing anything else. You're paying attention to that as, as your, your primary occupation. So make sure that we pay attention to what our job is. And if we execute our job, uh, we'll find success. Anything I left out, Michael? No, that's good, man. I, I, I think these to just the, the comprehension that this guy, this son of a widow, you can almost imagine him toiling in obscurity in, in northern Israel that he, he now is recorded eternally as a skillful uh, bronze worker. That's pretty cool. Um, and that kind of gives us some insight into um, what, what being good at your craft and, and working for the Lord you know, is about. Yeah, so one of two things happened at the end of this. Either one, he retired because he was paid well from Solomon. Or two, he had no problem getting work. Hey, uh, what do you got in your portfolio? You know that thing down there in, uh, in Israel? That, that's me. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. All right, um, thank you all again for, for joining in with us. Hopefully you found some value to our disclaimer earlier. Spiritual lessons are always the most important thing, but we think there's some value in these business lessons too. So hopefully this helps you as you go to work uh, today and this week. Um, Find your, your purpose, find your path, and uh, be able to be a little bit more successful tomorrow than we were today. Um, we will try to do this again uh, in a week or so, um, as soon as our schedules will allow it. But uh, we appreciate the fact that, that you're here and that you're tuning in with us and look forward to doing it again. Enjoyed it, my friend. <laughs>